Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of the Latin American Studies channel. I'm your host, Mini Soni, and I'm a professor of Hispanic Studies at the University of Delhi in India. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by Adrian Schubert titled The Sword of Luciana, Baldomero Espartero and the Making of Modern Spain, 1793 to 1879, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2021. Adrian Schubert is a professor of history at York University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He has published the following books, Death and Money in the Afternoon, A History of the Spanish Bullfight, The Road to Revolution in Spain, The Coal Miners of Asturias, A Social History of Modern Spain. He has been awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship for the Humanities. So, Professor Schubert, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Oh, It's a great pleasure, Minnie. The first question that I want to ask you is, that you have said that Baldomero Espartero, uh, who lived from 1793 to 1879, led a life resembling that of a character created by Stendhal or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. What prompted you to write a biography on Spain's first modern public figure, of whom a postage stamp was released in May 2020, and who you compared to Napoleon and Garibaldi? How have biographies become a kind of micro-history because you've written at length elsewhere as well on this topic. Okay. Well, that's a great question to start with. So writing a book about Espartero is something I had in my mind for a very long time before I actually started. In fact, it probably, the idea probably began when I took a history of Spain course with Professor William Callahan as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto. At, and you know, it, it, that, at that time, he, he was this tremendously, I suppose, romantic figure. Uh, uh, and it's a life story. I said it was truly uh, amazing. Uh, something is, you know, only I think the greatest kind of novelist like the two you've mentioned could invent. And also only the kind of life that would be possible uh, in a, you know, at, a, at a moment of tremendous upheaval, such as, you know, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars that, that came out of them. So let me briefly describe Espartero's life. Uh, I think he's a, a person who uh, is not known outside of Spain uh, and really not that well remembered uh, today. So he was born, as you mentioned, in 1793. He was born in a small town called Granatola de Calatrava, which is in the very center of Spain. Uh, and uh, he was born into very humble circumstances. His father was a kind of uh, carriage maker and wheelwright by profession. They had some land. So they weren't the poorest, but they weren't uh, elites. And uh, he was the uh, youngest of nine children, and he was sent to study, uh, well, he studied with a local priest, and then he was sent to study at the University of Almagro, which was maybe about 20 kilometers away, where one of his elder brothers, who was a monk, taught. 
And he got it, he graduated from, uh, with a degree. And then, uh, as you know, Napoleon invaded Spain in 1808. And when Espartero finished his degree in 1809, he volunteered for the army to fight against uh, Napoleon. And because of the changes that were taking place, he was able to uh, attend uh, officer school and become an officer, something the new government, the sort of the resistance government of Spain did, was open up the officer corps to anyone on the basis of merit, whereas before it had, under the Ancien regime, it had been a monopoly of the nobility. So Espartero spends uh, three years doing that. Then he uh, he graduates as a, as a junior lieutenant, fights in some doesn't not significant action during the Napoleonic War, the War of Independence, as it's called in Spain. So then that war ends, and the, the king who had been uh, basically imprisoned by Napoleon, Ferdinand VII, returns. And one of the first things he decides to do is to send a new army to the colonies in America to f- try and defeat the independence movements led by Simon Bolivar, José de San Martín, and others. And Espartero actually volunteers for this which was somewhat unusual. A lot of officers tried to get out of it. So he volunteers. He ends up spending close to 10 years in America, fighting mostly in what's today Peru. Uh, A little bit of his time initially was in what's today Venezuela and then subsequently in Argentina. He he rises from a sort of lieutenant to brigadier general over the course of this time on the basis of... uh, incredible battlefield valor for the most part and uh, developing the right um, pro, um, right uh, patrons. So uh, the, those wars end in defeat, of course. Uh, Espartero comes back to Spain. Uh, like so many officers, he, he during, uh, during the fights in America had expressed liberal political ideas defending the Spanish constitution. Uh, when he came back to Spain in 1824, 1825, uh, he found the country in the middle of what's known as the ominous decade with Ferdinand VII uh, engaging in uh, widespread repression of anything liberal. Espartero is lucky to, to pass through the political purge that allows him to remain in the army. And he, uh, he, uh, as a brigadier general, has a certain level of command. And in 1833, we find him on the island of Mallorca commanding a regiment. In the meantime, in 1827, he'd gotten married. And I'll, we'll come to that later because this is a, one of the, the key points in the book. So in 1833, he's in Mallorca and the Carlist War breaks out. And this is a civil war uh, which will last for seven years. And Espartero manages to, to, be, to, to rise uh, even higher, becomes the commander-in-chief of the liberal armies, and subsequently the victorious general in the war. In the meantime, he's gotten involved in politics on the pro- side of the progressive liberals. Spanish liberals at this time were divided into two large families rather than parties, the progressives and the moderates. And uh, in the sort of uh, political upheaval, uh, uh, there was a, a, the, the monarch was a, 
an infant, Isabel II, her mother, the widow of Ferdinand VII, was the regent and effectively head of state. Uh, in, in all of this political upheaval, Espartero emerges, well, he's appointed to the cabinet, uh, and then in 1841, he emerges as prime minister and eventually as the regent. The, uh, uh, there's a revolution which basically uh, forces the queen regent to leave the country, abandon her post, and Espartero is elected. He's head of state, uh, but he's he's not a very good politician, and in 1843, he's deposed by a, a military coup, a conservative, reactionary military coup, goes into exile in England, where he's received as a great hero of liberalism. And he spends five years there. Uh, he's eventually allowed to come back. <clears throat> and he goes right away up to the city of Logroño, which, which is where his wife is from. And they basically they're living there more or less quietly until 1854 when a revolution breaks out and it looks like the, the queen isabel ii is in danger of being overthrown and she calls on espartero she writes him a, a short letter about three lines on very basic paper no letterhead nothing and basically saying please come save my throne <laughs> And he comes down to Madrid. He's received as this tremendous hero. He's described as the personification of liberty. And he becomes prime minister again. Uh, but again, he's overthrown after two years, goes back up to Logroño where, in 1856, where he remains the rest of his life. He literally never sets foot out of there for 23 years. But in an odd turn of fate, uh, even though his a time as head of government in 1854-1856 had uh, ended very badly, and we can talk in, about this in more detail if you want. He remains an important political figure, particularly in the minds of many Spaniards. So that in 1868, there's yet another revolution, and this time Queen Isabella II is overthrown, and she goes into exile. And Spain now finds itself having to choose a new monarch. And, it's, and there's this huge campaign to make Espartero king. And in fact, the provisional government, uh, the head of the provisional government, writes to him and effectively offers him the throne. And he says no. And then that's 18, 1871. And then you know, he dies eight years later. I mean, this, you know, what a story from, you know, the uh, you know, poor kid from the middle of nowhere who ends up being offered the throne and turns it down, uh, fights Napoleon, fights Bolivar, wins the Civil War. I mean, you, you know, I think you can certainly understand why, why it would uh, you know, be attractive as a, a subject to write about. Anyway, this remained in the back of my mind while I did my graduate work at the University of Warwick at the Center for the Study of Social History and then at the University of London. Uh, and it remained there, even though my interests were in in social history. And you mentioned the two books, uh, two of the books I've written, which were very much social history books. Uh, but I, you know, this idea was there, and I was always building up a bibliography and keeping track of any primary sources I came across. And then in two thousand and two, I agreed to take a job as the associate vice president of my university. It was a new position uh, for international relations. And I spent, it was supposed to be three years. I spent seven doing it. And it sort of 
uh, turned out to be a sort of a break in my uh, uh, development as a historian. But at, during that time, I decided, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And the, the, the key thing was that I was able to track down Espartero's personal papers, which no one had ever cited. Uh, so, you know, this, and, and I decided that without those, really, I couldn't do anything um, useful. So when I did track them down, and uh, here I owe a tremendous debt of thanks to uh, not Espartero's direct successor, but the inheritor of one of his titles, the Duke of Victory, uh, and uh, the, the now late Duke of Victory and his son, the current one, who gave me, who were tremendously generous in letting me see these papers. Thousands of letters, thousands of letters, both those he wrote and more importantly, as it turned out, I think those he received. Uh, so uh, when I finished uh, my term as associate vice president, I threw myself into this into this project, and it led to a Spanish edition of the book, which was published in 2018, and then the the English one, which is a slightly shorter version that we're discussing now, was published in 2021. So that's a very long, a long way to answer your first question. Uh, the, the comparison you mentioned to Napoleon and Garibaldi, uh, th there are differences, of course. Uh, Espartero was really only a national figure, a Spanish figure, whereas uh, Garibaldi and, of course, Napoleon uh, had uh, much, you know, uh, were uh, European figures and, and even international, so global ones. Uh, the parallel has to do with the immense popularity uh, that Espartero developed, what I call the, the cult of Espartero. And it was here uh, that, you know, him becoming a, a public figure in a modern sense that the parallel to Garibaldi and Napoleon comes in and I think puts them in a category which is unique for 19th century Europe. There, there weren't, in, I would contend, any other uh, similar figures. Uh, finally, uh, biography is microhistory. Uh, so biography, of course, is a much, much older genre than microhistory. Microhistory emerges in the 1970s, especially in Italy, and especially in the context of early modern European history, 16th, 17th century history primarily. And it's associated with people like Carlo Ginzburg, Giovanni Levy, Natalie Zeman Davis, and two of my colleagues at York, Tom Cohen and Elizabeth Cohen. And all of these uh, people who practice microhistory focus on essentially obscure individuals uh, like Minocchio the Miller, who is the subject of you know, the, the, great, the first great classic of the genre, Ginsburg's The Cheese and the Worms, or uh, a specific event like uh, The Sentimental Murder, which is at the center of an interesting microhistory by British historian John Brewer. And the story in, in this genre, the story of an individual life, and particularly an, the individual life of an obscure person both illuminates the past and allows uh, historians to reach a wider audience because these are, when it's well done, these are tremendously engaging stories. Uh, and microhistory has also contributed to what's been called the biographical turn in, in history and more broadly in the social sciences. Uh, now, my own approach isn't, my, isn't microhistorical. Espartero is what would be called a great man, and great man, and to the extent 
they existed great women, really not the subjects of microhistory. Rather, I uh, put myself in the genre of what the French historian Sabine Loriga has called biographical history. And this is a biography, but biography which is um, guided by substantial historical questions. And I've been inspired by uh, a book on Garibaldi by Lucy Ryle, and especially by uh, Spanish historian Isabel Bourdiel uh, and her biography of Isabel II. Uh, and these are books, uh, the, uh, Ryle's on Garibaldi and Bourdiel's on Isabel II, about great people, as is mine, but they also interrogate the idea of greatness. They ask what and more fundamentally, who makes a person great? How do so they don't take greatness for granted? How is greatness constructed? Now, in my <coughs> excuse me, in my book, I engage with three historical, three substantial historical questions, and for each of these, I try to establish a protagonist in the book. So the first uh, of these is political culture and national identity. And the extent to which uh, there was a shared national identity in Spain and where it came from have been probably the major question in the historiography of 19th century Spain. And here, uh, my protagonist is what Isabel Bourdiel, in a wonderful phrase, called el coro de voces, the chorus of voices that created competing stories about people at the time. So... There were many, many thousands of people, ordinary Spaniards all over the country, who admired, even revered Espartero. They saw him as the unyielding champion of liberty and especially the bringer of peace after what was a very brutal uh, seven-year civil war. In fact, the, the Carlist War was in per capita terms, was more lethal than the Spanish Civil War of the 20th century. Uh, And it was people, these ordinary people, and many of them wrote to Espartero and told him how they felt about him. And this was one of the greatest sources I had for, for writing my book. It was these people and entrepreneurs who catered to them by producing lithographs, uh, cheap books and other objects, uh, affordable objects that people could buy and they did buy. Uh, and th- this, is, this is the process that kept this cult of Espartero alive across decades and generations. It was something you can see, I see in these sources that was passed down from parents to children that people would write about, you know, when I was a child, I remember my parents talking to me about the great General Espartero and how he brought peace to Spain. And ever since then, I have been an Esparterista. I have been uh, an admirer and supporter uh, of yours. Uh, And in this way, uh, Espartero became Spain's first political celebrity and first real public figure. And as well as the incarnation of public morality, because he had a powerful reputation as a very uh, upright and honest person at a time when public life in Spain was racked by uh, 
scandals about morality and uh, and honesty. And he became this chorus of voices, you know, made, uh, comprised of all these individuals, uh, almost none of whom's name have made it into the historical record. Uh, this is the they're the protagonists, and I've made a point about trying to name them in my book uh, whenever I could. And they were mostly men, but there were a lot of women here too, which is important. And that leads on to the the second question I try to deal with, which is gender. So across, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> across the Atlantic world, uh, the age of revolutions, beginning with the American Revolution and leading through uh, the French Revolution and the events it triggered uh, in Europe in the first decades of the 19th century. Uh, the, the construction of liberal and republican political systems and new societies was accompanied by the need to define uh, gender, what gender roles would be like in these new states, these new political systems and new social systems. Uh, and this is, for historians, this has been a longstanding question, uh, particularly in, in the context of uh, United States, British, uh, and French history. But it's also, also been true uh, in the context of Spanish history as well. And in recent years, there's been a substantial and sophisticated literature that has uh, painted a much more nuanced and textured and complex picture of the creation of the liberal state in the first half of the 19th century in Spain. So uh, initially, there was this idea, the, the idea that liberal states and liberal polities uh, were dominated by the, the idea of the two spheres, the separate spheres. The public sphere was for men, the private sphere was for women, there was an absolute boundary between them. In Spain, uh, this was known as the uh, the Angel del Hogar, the Angel of the Hearth, uh, uh, after the title of a massive bestseller uh, from uh, 1859. But the more recent literature is showing that uh, rather than this, and rather than there being something so clear uh, set in place at the beginning of this process of revolution and political and social construction, that uh, the roles of women were highly debated and that women themselves participated in these debates. And women were a constitutive part of the liberal revolutions of the time. And interestingly enough, certainly in the Spanish context, these debates were not just between liberals and reactionaries or absolutists, the different, the two families of liberals, the liberals, the progressives and the moderates also had fundamentally ide uh, different ideas about the place of women in the new order. And the years between 1837, when uh, a, a sort of progressive constitution was put in place and the fall of Espartero's regency in 1843, a period in which the progressives were in power for pretty much all the time, uh, was crucial in the creation of what uh, uh, Monica Borghera has been called, has called a respectable, a respectable public femininity, which was centered on education and philanthropy. Uh, although, as I mentioned in subsequent, in the second half of the 19th century, this gave way to a, a more uh, cl you know, classical separate spheres situation. 
So this is the second question I engage with. And here the protagonist is Espartero's wife, uh, Maria Jacinta Guadalupe Martinez de Sicilia y Santa Cruz. And we can talk more about her if you'd like. She is a key figure in the book. And then the third uh, question I engage with is historical memory. And this is, in Spain today, a hugely important and contentious question, historical memory. Although it it is dominated, if not monopolized, by the Spanish Civil War of the 20th century and the Franco regime uh, of 1939 to 1975 uh, that, that came out of it. Now, it's not surprising in a country with such a tumultuous political history, which had two lengthy uh, and lethal civil wars in a century, uh, uh, and in which a, you know, a brutal dictatorship contaminated the symbols of, uh, of, of nationalism, that, uh, that cultures of memory are particularly complex. And uh, historical memory in Spain remains long, but fragmented and conflictual. And this is particularly where potential national heroes uh, are concerned. Uh, so while the 19th century in general, and Espartero in particular, are not major topics of uh, historical memory debate today, they are still uh, they are still uh debated to a certain extent. And this is a question which really does not have a protagonist in my in my book, which I think is also indicative of the situation in Spain regarding historical memory. Uh, now, you devote a considerable amount of space in your book to Espartero's wife, Jacinta, and you call them a power couple. And your view is that her role in his life and public life brought to the fore gender issues in the 19th century, which were a constitutive part of the liberal revolution and the roles of women were the focus of debates in which women participated. Now, you've given us quite a comprehensive account of the motivations that led you to write this book and about Espartero himself. So now we go on to this uh, topic, which is uh, of considerable interest for contemporary readers. Tell us more about Casinta. Okay. Yes, I gave her as much attention as I could, and I've already explained that I, I use her as the protagonist uh, for my discussion of gender. Gender, but Jacinta and uh, was is a fascinating person in her own right. And I, if I could have, I would have written a double biography. Unfortunately, the sources didn't lend themselves to that. So I described Espartero's life uh, or Baldomero's life, and when I write about uh, it's usually in the context of her husband, and in that, and that's the time in the book where I refer to, refer to Espartero by his first name. So, uh, Baldomero and Jacinta, not to, uh, to put them on an equal footing. So, Jacinta was born in the small provincial capital of, of Logroño, uh, and uh, she was orphaned uh, very young. Uh, her mother died when she was infant. Her father, sorry, uh, and her father died when she was three. And she was raised by her maternal grandparents, who were uh, her maternal grandfather was a, a very rich, self-made man and politically a liberal. Now, in 1827, when she is 16, 
and he is 34. She marries Espartero. And it, 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 and they remain married for 51 years until she dies. And it tried, it, it, to me, it seems this must have been an arranged marriage. Uh, he was stationed uh, at this time, not in the Gronio, but not far away. It's not clear how they met. Uh, the document, the financial documentation around the marriage is there. Uh, she had a very uh, substantial dowry because, uh, on her, I said, on her mother's side, she came from this rich merchant family. On her her father's side, she came from the local uh, aristocracy. And so she inherited a lot of land, a lot of property, not a lot of money. Espartero <clears throat> somehow, and I don't, I never haven't been able to figure out how, had managed to amass quite a large fortune while he was in America. Because he certainly didn't have much, have any money uh, when he started out in life, and it's not not clear how he made this. There's a legend about because uh, that he made it gambling, playing cards. But I personally find that hard to believe. In any case, uh, they marry. He's twice her age. He's had this amazing life, you know, fighting against Napoleon, being ten years uh, in the American colonies, fighting. She's a sixteen year old young woman been raised in a small provincial town uh you know it's, it's sort of trying to wonder what you know what they have in common so uh espartero manages to arrange for jacinta uh during the carlist war to be named a, a lady of honor to uh th the royal court to the queen regent so here she is, a very young woman, reputedly a very beautiful woman as well, uh, goes to court and spends a lot of time uh, in the, in the uh, in proximity of the queen regent, the, the child queen, and the, 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 court, the court nobility. Uh, and here she, she becomes involved in important political events. There's a wonderful letter uh, where Espartero says to her, to Jacinta, I'm not writing to the Queen Regent much anymore because I've got you. You are, and he says, a living letter. So she's the back channel. She's, you know, he's having her communicate to the Queen Regent, and this is the point in which uh, he's getting involved in politics. So she's playing uh, a crucial role. Then she becomes the consort of the head of state when he becomes regent. She began when she uh, she's living in this palace in Madrid, you know, attending, uh, presiding over all kinds of functions. Uh, in this in this time, she becomes an a back channel between Espartero and the British government. He tells he writes to her and says, "Tell this to the British ambassador." And this is stuff he's not even telling his government. So again, he's using her. Uh, to you know, in an important way in, in these very you know, these are you know political matters uh, of the highest level. She then has to go into exile with him. Uh, just before they come back from exile, they have dinner with Queen Victoria, and in her diaries, uh, Queen Victoria writes about this, and she she describes uh, Hathinta as. Uh, a woman, you know, very attractive woman who would have been beautiful when she was young. I mean, she was she was in her mid thirties at this time. So anyway, they uh, they come back. Uh, 
she spends a lot of her time as curating Espartero's public rec- reputation. And, uh, and then she, I mean, she was a very religious woman. Uh, he wasn't religious. Uh, she, uh, and then uh, she, she suddenly, um, in 1878, when she's uh, 65, 66, has a stroke and dies very quickly thereafter. Uh, she's a lot, you know, again, she, he's much older than, uh, than he, do, he lives for another year. And I, I imagine him wandering lost around this big house they have in Lagronio, Casa Palacio, it was called, you know, without his, uh, you know, beloved wife of 51 years. And the, um, the correspondence between them uh, during the Carlist Wars, uh, he wrote her, there, in, there are in his archives, just over 600 letters he wrote to her while well, he's off on campaign and he writes on horseback. He writes in the middle of the night when he gets back, he writes twice a day. Sometimes, unfortunately her letters to him don't exist. Although reading his letters is a bit like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You know, you get a sense of what the person you can't hear is saying um, from what the, the person you can hear is, is, is replying. Uh, so she has this tremendous life as well. Uh, she was a woman of strong opinions, and she voiced them bluntly. In these letters, that at least in Espartero replying to her to her letters, it was quite clear that frequently she was telling she was telling him what she thought, and she told him when she thought he was wrong. And you know, she and again on matters of of politics. Uh, she was very forthright, and in some of other, a few other, the other letters, a few of the letters of her that did survive, but written to to someone else, she uh, she could be very forthright in describing Espartero's enemies, and interestingly enough, and she would often do so in English. So she clearly learned a fair amount of English when she was in exile, and actually subscribed to the Illustrated London News when she was uh, back in Spain. Uh, now, t- uh, t- two of my most exciting archival moments in writing this book, probably the two most, uh, after uh, getting access to Espartero's papers itself, have to do with Jacinta. Uh, the first was going through Espartero's uh, correspondence and finding mixed in with his letters for the 1860s, 20 letters of hers that she was writing to um the, the man who married their adopted daughter, they didn't have any children of their own. Uh, and she's writing on uh, politi- one of the big political controversies of, of the day involving Espartero. And then the other one uh, took place when I was at the University of, uh, University of Southampton uh, in, in, in Great Britain, looking through the Palmer, excuse me, the Palmerston papers, Lord Palmerston. And there was a lot of correspondence uh, between Palmerston, uh, who was foreign secretary at the time, and a British ambassador in Madrid. And this covered the period when Espartero was in exile. And there's, uh, th- there was a, a crisis involving the Queen, as there very frequently was. And Palmerston writes to the ambassador, you know, we've got to get Espartero back there, but we especially have to get Espartero's wife back there to help deal with the queen. She's an exceptional woman. And I thought, you know, I almost sort of yelled. So here's, you know, one of the most powerful men in the world, you know, 
talking about how wonderful Jacinto was. So that, you know, that that was just one of those one of those historians' moments. <laughs> That's a wonderful exposition you've given us. Right now, uh, we talk about the next part where you talk about historical memory. Now, you contend that though historical memory might be a burning question, but in Spain, it is centered almost exclusively on the civil war and the Franco regime. Soon after the Spanish publication of your book, when you wrote, the, and I quote, the most famous and revered Spaniard of his time, the person many saw as the embodiment of peace and constitutional government, has been completely forgotten. He has never ever been accorded the modest recognition of a postage stamp, end of quote. And then apparently the post office issued a postage stamp of him within 18 months citing your book. And elsewhere, in your book, you quote Karl Marx, who wrote in a New York Tribune article that Espartero was one of those traditional men whom the people are wont to take upon their backs at moments of social crises and whom, like the ill-natured old fellow that obstinately clasped his legs about the neck of Sinbad the sailor, they afterward find it difficult to get rid of. Why did Espartero fall into oblivion? Yeah, I was really pleased with the postage stamp, uh, especially, as you said, the official announcement from the Spanish post office cited my book. I, I guess that counts as a kind of public policy impact sort of thing our universities want us to, to do these days. Well, let me start with, with the quote by Karl Marx. I mean, it's pejorative, but it's not that's not surprising. And it was part of Marx's analysis of the revolution of 1854, which he wrote for the New York Herald, for which he was uh, a frequent correspondent in those days. And uh, the revolution of 1854 can be seen as a a sort of belated Spanish version of the revolutions of 1848. Spain was one of the few places in Europe that did not have a revolution in 1848, mostly because the Spanish government really clamped down on things and didn't allow it to happen. But a revolution did happen six years later. Uh, It began as a military movement, uh, but then took on a popular aspect, and the goal of which was to overthrow an increasingly authoritarian government. But uh, it it also, for a certain amount of time, looked like it was going to overthrow the monarchy itself, uh, Queen Isabel II. And this is the context that I mentioned earlier. She writes to Espartero, who is up in La Grogno, and says, please come, come to Madrid, become prime minister, Save my throne, basically. Uh, And he comes to Madrid, although first of all, he sends um, one of his aides down to negotiate terms. (laughs) But he comes to Madrid, and there's this tremendous, tremendous outpouring of joy. Uh, The the descriptions are just mind-blowing. And he's received, amongst other things, as the personification of liberty. This is what they're calling him. Uh, And I think that Marx, and not just Marx, did not and could not understand the the popularity, this kind of popularity, because Espartero uh, had been the, the victorious commanding general in the Carlist War. He... He had been sort of baptized by ordinary Spaniards as El Pacificador, the bringer of peace. And Spaniards, both on the liberal side of the Carlist War and the Carlist side of the Carlist War. Uh, and, and also, as well as the bringer of peace, the kind of defender of liberty. 
So he, there was this incredible uh, popular um, uh, cult, you know, affection, even reverence for Espartero. And this is ex- this what explain this explains this tremendous uh, reception in 1854, which Marx is you know dismissing. But uh, you know, I guess we, we can't blame him for that. But it, it really just doesn't. Uh, come close to understanding the nature of uh, Espartero's relationship with uh, many ordinary Spaniards. Now, in a sense, Marx was right, because Espartero would end up gravely disappointing all the hopes that were put on him in 1854. Uh, uh, But, you know, if you want, we can go into that later. But your question is really about why did he fall into oblivion? Now, he died in 1879, but he, he did remain sort of in memory, at least for the rest of the 19th century, and was invoked uh, widely in the press at certain moments. So uh, a number of official statues or monuments were erected to him. Uh, one actually uh, was a uh, a tomb uh, uh, he and Jacinta had both been buried in a cemetery in Logroño, but a decade after his death, so in 1889, they uh, reinterred the two of them in the, the cathedral of Logroño with a, in a tomb that was paid for by the Spanish state. And it's interesting that, I, as far as I know, this is the only monument, official Spanish public monument, to a a public figure and his wife. So it's the great General Espartero and his wife, Jacinto. It's really quite uh, impressive. Uh, but uh, when their remains were transferred in 1889, it did trigger uh, a lot of discussion in the in the Spanish press, uh, reassessments of Espartero's career, but in light of what was going on in Spain at that moment. And when uh, the statue in Madrid was erected in 1895, there were similar discussions, but that that's really the end of it. Uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, Spain has entered into the age of mass politics, and Espartero now falls basically into total o- oblivion. He's no he's really no longer relevant um, in in this new political context. During the, the Civil War of the 20th century, uh, there are some references to Espartero and particularly to the uh, uh, the way he ended the Carlist War, which was uh, the, an act of reconciliation between the two sides, very theatrical, very 19th century, where he, he and the Carlist commanding general embrace each other on horseback in front of the, the troops of both armies that they've... Uh, they've uh, stationed around them. And this embrace of Vergara, as it's called, is the subject of some discussion uh, during the Civil War on both sides. And it's interesting enough, it's denounced by both sides. In fact, at the very beginning of the war, Emilio Mola, who is the man who organized the military revolt that uh, began the Civil War, in one of his first speeches says, we're not going to have any embraces of Vergara, nothing but absolute victory. And this kind of line gets repeated on the Francoist side, but it also gets repeated on the Republican side. So 
you know, Zanz Espartero and, you know, what for his life, you know, in his life was the most important thing he did. And the thing that people most valued is being rejected out of hand by both sides in this 20th century civil war. Now, it's not in the, in the current context, it's not surprising that the more recent past, the Spanish Civil War and the Franco regime, dominate public debate on historical memory, uh, especially in a country where there are hundreds of mass graves that remain unexcavated and the remains of many thousands of people who were murdered remain unidentified. And this is, you know, this is a human tragedy and is and should be at the front of public debate. Uh, but the, you know, the sort of Espartero falling into oblivion is, I think, the symptom of something larger. And that is the inability of Spaniards to figure out what to do with their 19th century and with its long liberal tradition and how, to, how or even whether to try and make this into some kind of usable past to incorporate it uh, into their public discourse. And they really... It's never been done. I mean, uh, the 19th century, um, the, the, for a long time, the dominant narrative of Spain's 19th century was failure. Uh, one of the uh, most important books written in the 1970s was called The Failure of the Industrial Revolution in Spain. And the idea that the 19th century was a disaster. It, the country couldn't industrialize. It couldn't... Uh, sustain normal political life. It was just one military coup after another, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there, the Franco regime made its own contribution to this because for, for Franco personally, for example, the 19th century was a disaster, but not for the same. For him, he's, and he said in one of his speeches that he, he wanted to eradicate it from, the memory, from, from Spain's history because it was the century where everything went wrong, where, you know, and I guess to put it into more contemporary parlance, Franco wanted to make Spain great again. And it was the 19th century that had led to it ceasing to be great. And so 40 years of uh, denigration of what Francoists like to call the false outmoded liberalism and other things of the sort uh, did their work as well. So, the 19th century as a whole, the 19th century liberal tradition, which was a long one, a long one, and Espartero uh, as a person, have not, you know, have not found a place. Now, it is interesting that all that said, Espartero has not been totally forgotten even even today, and the uh, where his memory is most alive, although in a negative sense, is in Catalonia. And it has to do with the ongoing issue of Catalonia's relationship to the rest of Spain and whether or not it will become independent. Now, uh, the reason for this is that uh, while Espartero was regent, there was an uprising in Barcelona. And Espartero went from Madrid to Barcelona and personally ordered and oversaw the bombarding of the city. Now, in the context of 19th century Spain, bombarding a city was not unusual. Uh, there were other, in numerous other contexts where, where in the context of revolts, uh, government officials bombarded a city. But 
Catalan nationalists and Catalan independentistas or separatists, depending on your point of view, have seized on this. So, and it turns up in the media every once in a while. Back in 2016, I was interviewed on uh, Catalan television. Uh, and the very first question, the very first question was, is it true that Espartero said that it was necessary to bombard Barcelona every 50 years? Well, the answer to the question is no, he never said it. But this is something that somehow has gotten, you know, some kind of urban legend that he allegedly said this. And this is what um, uh, what what many people in Catalonia uh, remember. Now, it, it's interesting that even after bombarding the city, Espartero remained hugely popular in Catalonia for decades. In fact, I would say he was probably more popular in Catalonia than many other parts of the country. Uh, but just just the other day, just, just last week, as a matter of fact, uh, the city government of Barcelona, uh, as part of a, a larger project, changed the name of one of the streets in the old of the city, the, the, the Gothic quarter of Barcelona, to remove the last vestige of Espartero from the city street plan. So in 1857, they had named one of the streets down there the uh, Duke of Victory Street, again, referring to his, his title. Uh, in 2008, the uh, then city government changed it to Duke Street. So you know, they're kind of removing Espartero from the equation. But uh, now, just uh, just last week, it was decided even that was too much. So they've changed the, the Duke Street is no longer there. And the street has been named after a woman by the name of Josefa Villaret, who led a bread riot in 1879. So it's interesting who who gets who gets the street name, but uh, it, it, in in our context, what's interesting is that even today, there you know, for some people, Espartero has to be removed from the equation. So thank you very much, Professor Schubert, for talking to us today about this book. You've uh, actually brought Espartero back to life, you know, for all of us, and uh, I'd like to thank you. And I hope this book also becomes a textbook for uh, university students all over the world. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me and thank you for your wonderful questions.